Okay, we were beginning to talk about the four modes of clinging that the Buddha uh, spoke about. Especially, we'll talk about Paticca Samapada or dependent origination and how our feelings manifest themselves in clinging. But we can also see immediately that feelings have a particular point or an issue because feelings are the, uh, let us say, it's the language or the communication mechanism of the reptilian brain. In other words, the reptilian brain's primary method uh, or primary job to do is self-preservation. The self-preservation instinct is the baseline bottom instinct, and that goes almost down or, in fact, down to the cellular level. So that, um, and that the primary um, language that is used is the language of fear. Fear is the basic bottom line language that we have. And it, it comes out of the self-preservation instinct. And the Buddha, this is what the Buddha calls the selfishness or the self. The self is only present when there is the self-preservation instinct in operation. And that that's what leads to fear. And that it's one of the four modes of clinging, which is clinging to oneself. But as we already started talking about, there's another uh, instinct that is uh, not quite so primitive. These are the three instincts of what is referred to as procreation, which I will call also materialism. And then there's the th third instinct is the nesting instinct or herding instinct. And the fourth one is the territorial instinct. The Buddha talks about the territorial instinct in the sense of attachments to, um, let us say, groups that we identify with. Now, in animals like the dog, the territorial instinct is, is still just territory. But for the humans, because of our nomadic lifestyles and other things like this happened over time, our territory has become almost intellectual. In other words, what I know is me. And if people don't know what I know, then they're foreigners to me. Now, that can happen. Uh, um, in many, many different ways. For instance, someone comes up and he's not dressed like me. He doesn't know how to dress the way I know how to dress. Therefore, he is not me. He's a foreigner. So this whole idea then of the, uh, the territorial instinct is based actually as um, on the the nesting instinct. These things pile and layer on top. And so the top layer is the nest is the territorial instinct, but it fits right on top of the nesting instinct in the sense that who's in my nest is safe. That you'll see all kinds of animals nest together, birds nest together, wildebeest herd together, uh, dogs uh, live in and foxes live in holes and that they live in groups. That if you've got dogs around you, you can see that nesting and territorial instinct 
operating a lot of the time to where humans don't operate in a strictly nesting instinct or strictly territorial instinct until they're in danger. But dogs get into dangers all the time. They just see somebody out there and they start barking because they're very territorial. And they want to be around the alpha or the, the big dog in their pack. And that's why they want to sleep in the bedroom with their owners. So everything is very territorial like that with, with animals. And also much of our own behavior as is, is humans is also instinctual. Rather than looking at what's really going on, we just behave the way that we were kind of pre-programmed to behave in childhood or before. So this is basically what happens. Now there's um, the, the nesting instinct. Buddha will call it uh, Sila Bhatta Paramasa. Sila Bhatta Paramasa, you hear the word Sila in there and you say, oh, well, I know what Sila is, that's morality. Well, the way that the Buddha talks about the nesting instinct is basically the most primitive set of moralities. And that if you don't get along in the nest, you'll get kicked out of the nest. You see that in, in uh, when, uh, let's say an example of that is the teenage girl wants to go out for the night and dad says, you can't go out, this is a school night. She says, I wanna go out anyway, I'm all dressed up and my friends are waiting on me and then daddy will say something like this is my house if you want to live here you have to do what i tell you to do i think that in fact every child in the world has heard that at least once in their life and it's a direct appeal to the nesting instinct and that the way that we operate is to go along to get along we do what we're told to do, and we do it not willingly or happily or joyfully or because it's a wise thing to do. We do it uh, reluctantly because we were told to do it, right? And normally when we're told to do something, we're told to do it by an authority. And one of the primary authorities children have is their own parents. So this part of the brain that operates in that territorial and uh, nesting instinct modality actually is uh, closely and directly involved with language because mammals have language. Dogs are very, very complicated in their language systems. I'm in fact, just last night, we were standing and watching the dogs interact over uneaten food. And they're, then take a step and the other dog will go. And, <laughs> and they're best of friends. In fact, they're mother and daughter. But when it comes to food, they get very, very territorial. They get, um, uh, so uh, dogs have a particular language. Humans have a more complicated language, but it's only complicated in syntax and um, vocabulary. 
but almost all of the language of the dogs and all the language of the humans comes out of feelings anyway out of the more reptilian part of the brain. So the dog has two parts of a brain. He's got the reptilian brain and the mammalian brain. And that mammalian brain then um, is what we use for our language, including auditory, the temporal lobes, all of this kind of part of the brain. Uh, and this is the Silabata Paramasa, which is our way of um, making sense out of the world because we remember what we were told as children. The third part of the brain is the only kind of brain that the humans have that's different than all of the other animals. And you can see, I don't have to go into it at all, uh, that humans have a society that no other animals have because of this frontal cortex. We're able to think or see things or we are able to observe. Basically, what I would say is that the development of the frontal cortex is basically the development that the only thing that the frontal cortex can do is to connect the dots. It's a dot connecting system. In other words, this plus this equals this. It's the basic foundation of mathematics. Is the fact that we can see how things are connected together that ordinary animals don't have. They don't have that ability to see what's going on. And this is the part of the brain that we need to wake up in, in meditation so that we're not putting so much emphasis upon the reptilian brain or on the mammalian brain, but we put most of our time and our effort and energy into that frontal cortex. Well, guess what? The reptilian brain is very, very conservative. It's there to operate all the time. That when you're asleep at night, you don't stop breathing. The heart doesn't stop working. You don't stop digesting your food. The body doesn't lay, lay limp uh, and, and frozen, but it's still quite active. And so all of the things that that an alligator can do with its body with the reptilian brain, the human can do that even when it's asleep, but it always does it with the reptilian brain. You can also see that in the dream state that the uh, mid cortex or the uh, temporal cortex will come into play. This is in the form of dreaming. Now, um, the this an, and this anatomy or this neuroscience that we're talking about has been observed both functionally and structurally for many, many, many years that in fact, uh, Freud came up with three ego states, the uh, id, the ego, and the superego. And we can see then that these three things that he is talking about or was talking about fit with this anatomy directly in the sense that the id is the reptilian brain and that the mid-cortex is the superego and that the uh, frontal cortex, the human part of the mind, is the ego. Now, uh, if when we talk about this, we have to make sure that we're using the words the way that Freud did, not modern times. An example of that is you've heard words like uh, egoistic or egotistical. 
basically what we mean by that egotistical is not the ego, but it's the id, that we should call it id-tistical. But we've made a mistake in the sense of what is one's ego? One's ego, then, according to Freud, is that part of the brain that's the highest part that can actually think and see correctly to where the id is the most primitive and the most reactionary part of the mind. That it only operates on instincts. Okay. He had a student, and his the student's name was Eric Byrne, and Eric Byrne changed the language of Freud to make it more uh, understandable. And this is the way, and I'm using all of this to introduce this to you so that we can come to this new understanding. And this is where these three parts of the brain with um, uh, Eric Byrne, he called them the parent, the adult, and the child where the reptilian brain is the child ego state and the uh, Silabata Paramasa mid-cortex language uh, uh, playing our old tapes, etc., that we learned in childhood, that's called the superego. And uh, Byrne called it the parent. The parent ego state means all the learned uh, language and shoulds and oughts and woulds that we learned from our parent. And then we go around our whole day telling ourselves the things that we heard when we were children. And then the adult ego state is this uh, frontal cortex that can actually see straight. And that's the part of the brain we don't use very much. Why is it that we don't use the frontal cortex very much? It's because it's actually worked to get it going. You can imagine uh, this way, that the reptilian brain and the mid-cortex are very, very primitive. They're old, uh, evolutionary, and they're efficient. To where the frontal cortex is new and not efficient is like uh, the human's first cut for the human supercomputer. And I call it a supercomputer in the sense that it uses a super amount of electricity. It uses a super amount of energy. And so we can see children, little children struggle with their ABCs and their one, two, threes because they're struggling to make this frontal cortex light up and start working. Now, how that helps with meditators is to understand that, oh, that means that if we breathe well, we'll get the effort, we'll get the energy, we'll get the oxygen and the fuel that we need to operate this frontal cortex so that we can actually come out of our old ways of doing things and making some new changes because we can see clearly, we can see directly what's going on. But when the brain does not have enough oxygen, we experience it as tiredness, but we also experience it as just going back to doing things the way that we used to do it, because that's easier to do it that way. Uh, we can actually use the word react in the sense that the way the reptilian brain operates is, is that it because it doesn't have very many choices. In fact, the only choices that the reptilian brain has is the choices of feeling. But that's his language. 
the language of feeling, the language of fear. So one of the language of one of the ways that the reptilian brain can express itself is in being terrorized, of being fearful. Another way that the reptilian brain then can express itself would be the feeling of safety and security. The, uh, the reptilian brain also has feelings that are associated with fear in the sense of the feeling of loss, sadness, grief, uh, despair, uh, anger. These are the kind of, uh, let us say, expressions that the reptilian brain has. But we also have the other side of it which is the feeling of satisfaction, the feeling of contentment, the feeling of uh, elation. So we have ways of feeling good and ways of feeling bad, but we get into the habit of feeling bad and that we need to then put the frontal cortex in operation so that we can actually change the way that the child feels. And the way that we can do that is with nurturing language. You see, the the um, basically what's going on is there's a dialogue that most people don't know that they have in their head. Uh, one part of the dialogue is done in um, language, and the other part of the dialogue is done in feelings. So here's one of the clear examples of that. A meditation dude, a jhana dude, is watching YouTube. And he has the thought, I ought to be meditating right now, or I should go meditate. That's coming out of that parent ego state. All of the would, shoulds, coulds, all of the rights, rules, things to do, etc. So you should be meditating right now. And then the response from the child within is, no, I don't want to go meditate right now. But that that response is not necessarily the language, it's just a feeling. And it might be language in the sense only of a groan. And so now the parent ego state will come back in, no, you ought to go meditate. And so now the individual is not watching the YouTube and he's not meditating. He's now in this dialogue between the parent and the child or between the um mid cortex and the and the posterior cortex while the thinking part of the brain is not working if the frontal part of the mind was working then at that particular point in time then the child's or the the uh, the response would be to take a deep breath and say oh yeah i am meditating yeah this is great but instead, we have it set up as a rebellion between the parent and the child because we set that up when we were really little kids. Mommy tells uh, little Johnny to do something. Johnny doesn't want to do it. Mommy and daddy have that kind of dialogue over and over again 10,000 times or 500 times during his lifetime. And so when he's adult, he continues that kind of dialogue in his mind and he's not even aware of it. So that we talk to ourselves and we basically are talking ourselves into feeling bad. And the way that we do this is with a prized possession of modern technology and culture. And that is 
critical thinking. You probably heard critical thinking is the best kind of thinking. Okay. Uh, critical thinking means that you're not looking at superstition, you're looking at the facts. But basically, if you look at the word criticism and critical thinking, that kind of uh, response is only one kind of criticism. Basically, criticism is the job of comparison. Uh, this is good. This is better. I like this. I don't like that. And that it winds up being a matter of feeling. But it also has a matter of attitude because a lot of the feelings that we have been stored to have are automatic with the so the parent and the child are interconnected so that we automatically have responses from the child because of the automatic response from the parent is always critical. You should go be meditating right now is a very critical thing to say. And uh, if you went to, let us say that you went into your average uh, dorm lobby where the kids are there watching television and told them you ought to be meditating, guess what their response is going to be? Get out of the way of watching TV, get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you, okay? But we do that to ourselves. We wouldn't dare just go say that to somebody else, but we'll tell it to ourselves. You ought to do this, you ought to do that, you ought to be doing this and that and the other thing. And then we rebel against it. So uh, when I was uh, uh, taking courses in psychology and, and whatnot, this was back in the days when magnetic tape was all the rage, you know, um, cassettes and eight tracks and all of that. And so they use the term playing the old tapes. Whenever we repeat what we heard from our parents in childhood, that almost always has words like ought, should, would, um, those kind of words then, we pick that up and we repeat them. But we repeat them in the same way that they were done, and that is critical. But there is another way that moms operate with children. When a child is actually born, uh, and the moment that, the, uh, let us say in modern systems, it's all done in hospitals and maternity wards and uh, operating rooms. And then after the child is born, within a few minutes, uh, they bring that baby to the mom. And the mom gets to meet and hold her baby for the first time. This is kind of a bonding moment. And most of the people who work in a maternity ward, they want to be there when mom gets her baby. Because it's a really gushy, wonderful moment. And that there's a lot of um, mental chemicals that are happening during this bonding phase where the baby is getting nurtured and cared for by its mom. Well. Three years later, five years later, mom don't have so much nurturing bond anymore. She's now back to being critical and she's critical of little Tommy. Go do your homework, clean your, clean your room, change your clothes, take a bath, put down your cell phone, do your homework. Okay, this is all now becomes very critical. And so we wind up being critical with ourselves for our whole life. What Anapanasati 
is all about is to change that method of communication with ourselves from being critical into being nurturing. Now, the Buddha talks about it in the sense of two kinds of thoughts, wholesome thoughts and unwholesome thoughts, and that we can think of critical thoughts as unwholesome thoughts. The kind of thoughts that we have, if you ought to do this, or you've got this work to do, or you've got this uh, problem that needs to be fixed, et cetera, like that. That's all critical thinking. And the critical thinking always has to do with I like it, I don't like it, which is back to the feeling. So the, the critical mind sets the child up for responding with feelings. And so critical mind then is the order of the day for I like it, I don't like it. And I like it and I don't like it. And I like it and I don't like it. And if I like it a lot, I've got a lot of greed for it. If I don't like it a, a lot, then that's a lot of ill will. So what we're talking about now is what is the cause of dukkha? In other words, we're actually discussing the second noble truth here. And that it's got ignorance built into it because we don't even know about this dialogue that we have inside until we start paying attention to it, until we start waking up to the fact that we go around giving ourselves marching orders on a regular basis only to rebel against those marching orders on the inside. This is what's called procrastination, is when you say, I ought to do this, I don't want to do that. I, I got to go do that, I don't want to do it. Which is different than, uh, and in fact, it's not even procrastination at all, would be, oh, I don't need to do that. I forget all about it. And now it's no longer procrastination. It's just, I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm good without it. But procrastination is, you ought to do it. I don't want to do it. You ought to do it. I don't want to do it. Go do that thing. Well, I don't want to do it now. I'll put it off. I'll do it later. Okay. But that dialogue, is a kind of dialogue inside that keeps us in a state of uncomfortableness. That this is in fact the dukkha that we have and that if we change the kind of thoughts that we have from uh, critical thoughts into nurturing thoughts, then we're changing the kind of thoughts we have from unwholesome to wholesome thoughts. So you can see then in fact the Buddha knew all about psychology 2,500 years ago. And not only that, but this is the way of getting out of it because psychologists uh, have known about this for more than 100 years with Freud, but psychotherapy doesn't seem to do what we need it to do. And the reason for that is because um, psychology is basically more oriented towards um, diagnosis to where the, the teaching of the Buddha is much more designed around cure. In other words, the diagnosis is you've got parent and a, uh, and a child dialogue going on. And the Buddha's point is, is that yes, but you can come out of that. You do not have to continue with that critical dialogue that keeps the child inside upset. We can stop being uh, critical of ourselves and start being nurturing instead. 
This nurturing, the Buddha also refers to as gladdening the mind or brightening the mind. This is step 10 of Anapanasati. To gladden the mind, to perk up the mind. When do we do this? Every time we can remember to do it. Every time we can remember to do it, because every time we remember to do it, we can come out of dukkha right then and there. We can come out of it simply by changing the thoughts that we have from critical thoughts into nurturing thoughts. That's sati, right? That well, sati is to remember to do that. Okay, the skill of coming out of a dukkha. Right. So actually, there's several skills that are going on. Um. Actually, not several. Let's let's add them up. The first one is the skill of sati. Sati is the number one skill to be developed because it doesn't matter what skills you have. If you don't remember to apply those skills just when you need them most, then you won't apply the skill. If you don't apply the skill when you need it, then it's like having no skill at all. For that reason, Sati comes first because it's the first thing that we happen. Now, the foundation is right view. Right noble view is uh, the foundation for all of this, because even if you wake up, if you don't have the right view about it, that's not going to help. OK, so waking up and having the right view are the are two foundational things. The next point on the Eightfold Noble Path is right effort, and right effort for sure is a skill to be developed. But in fact, when the skill of right effort is fully developed, it's almost energetic. That's how uh, skillful the effort becomes is to where it's just automatic. One of the examples would be you, you know about a jack in the box and you have that little tune pop goes the weasel. Well, in this particular case, with the beginning meditator, the lid pops up, but the jack doesn't pop out. You've got to take the effort of putting your hand in there and pulling the jack out. But when our meditation practice is operating correctly, then when sati happens, which means you turn the crank and the lid opens, the jack pops right out, spring-loaded. This is what is the outcome then of one's right effort is when it becomes actually energetic. But in the beginning, it is going to be some effort. And we can call it right effort in the sense that right effort, here's a good definition of right effort, is the least amount of effort that actually gets the job done. Not just the least amount of effort, but the least amount of method that actually gets the job done. What is the job to do? The job to do is to gladden or to brighten the mind. That's the only job there is to do, is to unhook uh, uh, the unwholesome thoughts that we're having, which are normally critical thoughts coming out of the parent ego state, and start having nurturing thoughts instead. This is one's right effort, is to have nurturing thoughts. 
what kind of not thoughts then would be nurturing and wholesome? In fact, you could say that nurturing thoughts are the most wholesome because they're nurturing, they're life-giving. Let me give you an example of some uh, thoughts that would be wholesome and nurturing. Wow, this is really nice. What a nice breath this is. This feels really good when I breathe. And I can relax and feel good. Okay. These are nurturing thoughts. Other nurturing thoughts would be, oh, what a beautiful moment this is. Oh, wow, I feel really good. So basically what we're doing is we're using language that's going to help that child ego state come out of the normal feelings that it has with critical thinking into the feelings of being nurtured because we're actually using language inside to nurture ourselves. So I'll say it this way, because this, everything that I've said so far up to now is getting for this one phrase. Okay, that one phrase is you have spent your whole life talking yourself into feeling bad. Now it's time to talk yourself into feeling good. You have been critical of yourself for your whole life. Now it's time to be completely accepting and nurturing. Everything's all right. Everything is fine. No work to do, no place to go, nothing to do. The spring comes and the grass goes by itself. Other like phrase from from Zen is, is that you're already enlightened. Why struggle with trying to be something that you already are? You're already enlightened. See how nurturing that thought is. You're already there. You've already got everything you need. And while you're telling yourself you've got everything that you need, that's the facts. And that's how you feel. Everything is actually okay right now. And so what we need to do is then to develop that as a skill over and over again. We've used three of them now. Right view, right uh, sati to wake up. Then right view is to investigate. Is this thought wholesome or is it not? And if it's not wholesome, then change it to a wholesome thought. In other words, have I been critical? This is good. This is bad. I got to do this. I've got to go fix that hard drive. I've got to go reboot the computer. I've got to go do this, that, and the other thing is all critical thought. But everything is all right. No problems. I'll get around to it eventually. Not in a hurry. These are all wholesome thoughts. And so we develop wholesome thoughts over and over and over again so that we can have one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought. In other words, we apply the mind to wholesome and then we sustain the mind on the wholesome and we get on uh, sort of on a vigilance or on a guard to listen to what the mind is saying so that we can maintain the point that it, what we're telling ourselves is generally wholesome. That when we get into critical thinking, we catch it and say, aha, I caught you. This is exactly what Buddha said when he started operating this way. When he started figuring out 
right after, you know the story about that he fell into the creek. Then he recognized that what he had been doing all of that time was not getting him what he was looking for. How could I possibly become enlightened if I can't even get myself out of the creek? I've gotten so weak. And so he started eating again. And that's when his buddies left him. And so he was there alone in Bodh Gaya for about six weeks. And that's when he figured this out. And the whole linchpin of the all the thought or all of this putting together of the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Noble Path, and Paticca Samupada, the key ingredient is this one phrase. Aha, I caught you, Mara. Aha, I see you, unwholesome thought, would be the way that we would say it today. Aha, I can see that I'm having unwholesome thoughts. Aha, I catch you. And so this is the, the whole point of the teaching there, is to get to the point that we can wake up, investigate the mind, and to catch the fact that the mind is in an unwholesome state, and then take the effort to move it out of an unwholesome state into the wholesome. Now, when we practice this over and over and over again, we begin to develop the attitude that has to do with success. In other words, if I could clean out my mind and bring it back to a wholesome state over and over and over again, now I'm building confidence. And eventually we get to the point of the confidence is, is that no matter how obstructed the mind is, no matter what kind of hindrances are there, I can, in fact, clean that out come back to this present moment and be here now and see things the way that they really are, as opposed to seeing things that I was seeing through the lens of the, the child ego state that's being fussed at by the parent. Now that child ego state is being nurtured by the parent. And that nurturing has to be done under the auspices of this frontal cortex. This part of the mind then that can actually see or witness. So you could say then that right view is part of the frontal cortex and also that right attitude. But much of the attitude is the child's attitude of being a winner. Finally, the child is no longer suppressed. Finally, the child is, is allowed to shine. And we feel like a winner. We feel like a champion. We begin to feel the way that we want to feel, as opposed to feeling the way that we're in the habit of feeling. So this is what the Anapanasati practice is really all about. It's about changing the mind state from the parents' uh, political thinking, unwholesome thinking, thinking of jobs that have to be done, thinking of past and the future, Thoughts of remorse. Oh, you really screwed that up. How many times have you had those kind of thoughts? And then how do you feel immediately after it? Well, if you stop telling yourself how bad you screwed up, then you don't have to feel like a screw up. If you keep telling yourself that you're a winner, then you can begin to feel like a winner. Basically, we could say then that as children, we were raised from the very beginning, and every child gets this attitude because they can see it. Little kids are baby, they're small people. Very, very young children can't feed themselves. They can't, uh, they can't carry a cup of coffee to daddy. They can't do things. 
the furniture is not designed for them so that they have to work really hard to crawl into a chair. We and not only that, but all the people around us are really big. And they hit us. So we start off as a child, as a victim. We as a child, uh, every child gets the attitude that we were a victim to the society in which we live. We grow up and you could say that a real growing up process when a person really becomes an adult is when he comes out of that victim's mentality into becoming a winner. And this is actually what we're practicing with Anapanasati. We're practicing that coming out of being a victim moment by moment and putting the mind in the state of being a champion. We can do this. Now, the Buddha actually has it in one of the sutras, the sin number 48. This is actually, I would say, one of the key ingredients that the Buddha marks. This is one of the marked milestones that he put down. And that is, is that when the student decides or knows for sure or when he has the right attitude that no matter how obstructed the mind is, we can clean it out and come back to this present moment and be here now. And then the Buddha says this practice is uh, noble. It is, in fact, super mundane. It is, in fact, part of the practice of the path and it is not held by ordinary people. And this is the first step of knowledge on the path. So in fact, we could say that when someone comes to the position that no matter what, I can clean my mind out and come back to this present moment, that that's the first step of Sotapan because most people don't have that attitude. Most people stay victims. Most people think that they need help. Okay. What kind of help do they get? Well, look at how many different professions that we have that are doing nothing but helping. Psychologists, priests, doctors, lawyers, accountants, uh, booking agents. All of these people have professions that are designed to help someone do something that is difficult for that person to do. But the problem with uh, this stuff that we're talking about is, is that no one can get inside your head with a piece of, with a pair of tweezers and a, uh, and a knife and go in there and cut some stuff up and fix you. That you're going to have to do that on your own, all by yourself. This is why the second noble truth is stated the way that it is, that in fact, it, uh, when correctly understood, it is a clarion call. When we say that the cause of uh, irritations and suffering and um, uh, discomfort is due to greed, ill will, and delusion, it's not talking about Uncle Tom's greed, Aunt Susie's ill will, and Billy's delusion. No, we're talking about the greed in one's own mind, the ill will that's in one's own mind, and the delusion that's in one's own mind. Now, um, using the uh, piano and a piano teacher as an example, the piano teacher can listen to what little Billy is playing on the piano. 
but the Zen master cannot see what little Billy is doing on the floor in the meditation hall inside of his mind. Nobody knows what's going on inside the mind of another person. All we can see is behavior. Now, often behavior is attached to what's going on in the mind. We still don't know what's actually going on in the mind. All we can see is how people behave. So if everybody in the room is sitting still, how do we know which people are on a misery pity party and those that are being in great bliss? You don't know that. So it's not up to the teacher to fix your mind. It's up to the individual. He's got to do it himself. In other words, the second noble truth is all about responsibility. Who's the boss here? Who's in charge? And when we change it from that, in fact, we can talk about it this way. The first layer of doubt can be expressed with the phrase, who made this mess? That's our first doubt. Who made this mess? Imagine that you go into your house, you've unlocked the front door, and you walk into the front room, and the place is a mess. The first thing we ask is, who made this mess? And basically, what we're looking for is someone to clean up the mess that we can blame them for. Okay, the dog did it. Now the dog's got to clean up the room. Or maybe the cat was chasing a mouse. Or maybe the CIA was in here looking for that secret document. But whoever it is, we want to know who made this mess because then we can blame them for the mess. Guess what? In life, it don't work like that. We made the mess when we were kids. Now, we were handed this mess by our parents, but, but we made it. We took the ingredients from our parents and we made our own um, superego. We made our own parent ego state and we play the tapes that make us feel bad. You ought to be meditating. You ought to go do this. You got this work to do. So this whole point then is the second noble truth is all about it's your job. Nobody's going to do it for you. And the next point is, is that a lot of people in the West have the idea that meditation is something that you go and do. When we think of meditation, we think of a meditation hall, perhaps with cushions on the floor, with an altar. There's probably a lot of wood around. There's a dais or an altar. Maybe there's a monk or a Buddha Rupa sitting up on it and all of that kind of stuff. This is the Western mentality for how meditation is. But in the time of the Buddha, what did the Buddha say? Go to the forest, go to the foot of a tree, go to an empty hut. So I'm, I'm kind of surprised of why we've gotten the idea that meditation is something that a whole bunch of people do together in a meditation hall. Because, in fact, the time that we need that meditation is all day long. And that the time that we need it the most is when we're trying to blame other people for our own problems. Who made this mess? Who can I get to fix me up? Can I go to a psychologist? Can I go to a psychiatrist? Can I go to a doctor? All right. The answer is I can fix that problem and I can fix it right now. All I have to do is change my attitude. All I have to do is change my own mind. 
This is the real issue. Okay, so once one gets beyond that first level of doubt of who is I, who am I going to get to fix my mess? And they come to the position that only I can fix my mess. Nobody else can fix this mess. That comes the second level of doubt. What is that? Can I do it? Am I up to the task? Am I going to be successful? The answer to that doubt is in continuously correctly doing it. And every time that we do it, we gain confidence. Yes, I can do it. Yes, I can stop what I'm thinking and take a deep breath and relax. Yes, I can do this. I can practice that over and over and over again. And when we get that, now we're bringing the fourth one in. The Pali word for it is Sama Sankapa. And that uh, it can be um, translated as right attitude. The attitude of being a winner. This is a skill to be developed. And it is an antidote to the skills that we started off with. Which is the skill of being a loser. The skill of being a whiner, the skill of being a complainer, the skill of um, being one down, being bottom dog. Now we're going to practice being top dog. We're going to practice having right attitude. The right attitude is I can do this. That eradicates doubt. Now there's a third layer of doubt. And the third layer of doubt is, do I have the skills or the tools to, that I need to do this? And the answer is, because we've been practicing Eightfold Noble Path, and we see that the Eightfold Noble Path does work when we're practicing correctly, and now we have that point that we have knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path. We know what is the path, but we also know what is not the path. What is not the path is what we've been doing all along up until now. We know that that's not the path because it's not working. Including attachment to rites, rules, and rituals. That's part of, in other words, we got to do it this way. So an example of that is, is the guy says, oh, I'm going to be a meditator. That means at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I've got to sit for an hour. And so he sits down for an hour. What he's doing in that hour, we're not sure about, but at least he's going through the formality of the practice. But this is not what real Anapanasati is. Real Anapanasati is being mindful of what's in the mind. Real Anapanasati is to remember to take long, deep breaths. That's why they call it Anapanasati. Then, in fact, the word anapana is exactly backwards from the other word that you've heard, pranayana. Have you ever heard of pranayana, like pranayana yoga? This is the same thing. Anapana is pranayana with an R, and things are backwards. One is in and out, and the other is out and in. So, pranayana is out and in, and anapana is in and out. So, Anapanasati means to be aware of the breathing. And so by breathing well, we're actually giving the, the body more energy. 
we're giving it more oxygen. We're kind of lighting up the frontal cortex. There's also something else, and that is, is that in the MRIs, uh, functional MRIs, when they put the skull cap on it and things like this, and then give people various tasks to do, they have found that when people begin to monitor, watch, and control their breathing, that the frontal cortex actually lights up. There's two little spots right down in there that light up when uh, the breathing becomes conscious. That's a very interesting point that I don't think that the Buddha even knew because he was not a surgeon. He was not an, uh, a, a neurophysiologist. He was a practical dude. But he knew that breathing actually helps us to light up that frontal cortex so that we can actually be here now and see what's going on. So you could say then that um, that the that the child ego state or the reptilian mind is um, oriented towards staying alive. It's a self-preservation instinct. The nurse, the uh, the nesting instinct is in the service of staying alive. The territorial instinct is in the service of staying alive, and our um, uh, procreation instinct. Now, when we say procreation, immediately Western mentality, I think it's because of the Catholic Church, immediately starts thinking about sexuality. But really what we're talking about with the procreation instinct is, is that it is ownership of material possessions. So an otter can go down to the bottom of the sea and pick up a, an oyster and a stone, a rock, and he'll come up to the surface, he'll put that uh, um, oyster on his belly, and he'll hit it with the rock. And when the, uh, when, uh, the oyster is broken open, he'll let that stone fall back to the, uh, to the bottom of the ocean, and he's got it open. So humans are not the only ones who use tools. But what's so remarkable about uh, humans is, is that we keep our tools. The human saw that that was a really nice rock that opened that uh, shell very well. I'm going to keep that rock for next time. In other words, he's beginning to use the frontal cortex, but he did it in the service of self-preservation. And so we begin to get materialistic. That in fact, what you can say is that first guy's uh, rock become modern man's cell phone. We use it for protection. I've heard people say that, oh, I don't mind going down that dark alley because I've got my cell phone. And if I have any trouble, I'll just dial 911. Now, that's a very foolish thing to say. Something dangerous can happen long before you get the cell phone out and dial 911. But people have that false sense of security. That's what materialism is designed to do. We use our materialism to feel safe. We hide behind our possessions. Our house is, in fact, the, the nest that we have, but we hold our possessions there for security. So everything about these four instincts have to do with um, self-preservation. But when they come to clinging, 
that means that we actually cling to a self rather than just being selfish from time to time, we're selfish a lot. That instead of uh, being safe and secure, we want to hoard uh, products that's going to make us feel safe and secure. That instead of feeling safe and secure, we want to join a family, a nest, uh, uh, go along to get along. That in fact, one of the things that I find so amusing is, is that the Buddha talks about it, that when we go through these four modes of clinging, we, uh, because of that, will go into one of the woeful states. There are four woeful states within Buddhism. You probably heard about these. These are the places where one can be reborn. We can re be reborn in hell. We could be reborn as a ghost. We could be reborn as um, uh, a, an animal. Or we can be reborn as an Asura. Now, the Hinduism thinks about this rebirth or this reincarnation is from life to life. If you're a really bad guy during this lifetime, after you die, you're going to go to hell. The Buddha teachers know that if you act very, very badly, you'll wind up in hell in the next minute or two. That rebirth actually is re rebirthing this selfishness so that we are reborn into hell. Now, what would be hell would be considered anger or anxiety or some very heavy thing to where we really desperately want to get out of the situation but we don't know how to get out. So we'll have anxiety, we'll have anger, we'll have frustration. This is the hell state. The hungry ghost or pita also is known as, um, they call it the hungry ghost. And the example is like a, uh, a pot. It's got a very, very small uh, opening at the top. Big, big body, very small neck, which means that the pot can't get all that it wants. It can't fill itself up. So uh, this is basically that hell state or the woeful state of wanting things you can't have. Well, people go around wanting things they can't have all the time. Example is you want to go to the bathroom. Somebody's in the bathroom. And we wind up in that woeful state of I want something I can't have. Guess what? People carry that into meditation. They want experiences. They want enlightenment. And wanting enlightenment is of the woeful state of wanting something that you can't have, which means that wanting enlightenment is a guarantee that you'll not get it because you're already in a state of wanting something that you don't have. If we can come out of wanting something that we don't have so that we don't want it, now we can be free of it. And that's enlightenment, is to be free from wanting things. But we in our society have the idea that if we get what we want, we'll be satisfied. No, if we get what we want, we may be satisfied for a very short period of time, but then we've got to take care of it. And so there's more work to do. And we know that we've got to take care of it because if we don't, we'll lose it. And guess what? We're going to lose it anyway. And then when we lose it, we feel bad because we wanted it 
and now we've lost it. Whoa, poor is me. I used to have that thing and now I don't have it anymore. Okay, so we think that getting what we want will help us feel better. Where in fact, it doesn't. That's just more of the delusion. That coming out of desire and stop wanting things and becoming and actually teaching ourselves through Anapanasati and the practice of the Eightfold Noble Path to not want anything and to be satisfied with the way things are. This is the whole practice is in this very moment. Can you get yourself into a state of satisfaction? Can you get yourself into a state of security? Can you get yourself into a state of comfort? So uh, safety, security, comfort and satisfaction. These things are the definition of what we call sukha. Sukha is exactly the opposite of dukkha. Sukha is in fact opposite of dukkha in the Pali language. In, in Thai language, duke and suk exist at their opposites. And I've also recently from a student found out who has a, a Gujarati uh, family that duki and suki in, in um, the uh, Gujarati language is exactly the way that this is in the Pali. So that Indo-European language has lasted this whole time. And the Buddha now is talking about sukha. We get ourselves into a state of sukha, which means that we're no longer in a state of dukkha. If we could do that, that means that um, his entire teaching of dukkha, dukkha naroda has a different context than what we have thought of in Western Buddhism. In Western Buddhism, when we hear Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, what we actually think of is, is that Dukkha, 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 I'm going to look at Dukkha, I'm going to get some insight into Dukkha, and I'm going to go deeper and deeper into Dukkha, I'm going to get to the bottom of this stuff. Right? That's the way that we normally think about it. That's what we think of as insight meditation, and the insight meditation says to note whatever it is. But that's not the teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha would teach, note whatever it is in the sense of uh, investigation. So one's right view to see what it is. And if it is unwholesome, to immediately take the right effort to throw it out. To not leave the dukkha there, but to remove it immediately. So all we need to do to see dukkha is to just see that it's dukkha just enough to not step in it. So I give you an analogy of the farmer that has to cross over his pasture to get down to the cows. The cows are way over on the other side of the pasture. If the farmer keeps his eye on the cows because he's got to go over there to them, by the time he gets there, he's going to be covered in cow shit. But if he watches every step he takes while he's on his way to the cows, to make sure that he doesn't step into a cow pie one step after another, he can get over to those cows fairly clean. This is the way that we need to think of living our life, is, is that there is going to be cow pies of, of unwholesome thoughts at every possibility. We have to watch the thoughts that we have so that we can avoid unwholesome thoughts. 
And if we avoid unwholesome thoughts, then we can have wholesome thoughts. So basically what we're saying then is, is that there is unsatisfactoriness, the first noble truth. A lot of people will change that into life is suffering. Life is not suffering. I don't know of anybody. Well, occasionally people suffer in their life so bad that they want to end their life. But most people follow along the self-preservation instinct that we want to stay alive. Even the 91-year-old wants to make it to 92. And when he's 92, he wants to be 93. So when we look at it from perspective of that, it's not life itself that's dukkha, but rather it's what we do with it. And the cause of suffering is not life itself. This cause of suffering is basically these ignorant, unwholesome, um, critical thoughts. Thoughts of I like this and I don't like that. And so when we come out of those critical thoughts, we come immediately out of the second noble truth into the third noble truth. Now, this is something really important that anyone who practices correctly very quickly within a short period of time, and we'll say that um, we'll, we'll put 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes for the rank beginner. But as we gain skill, we can do it sooner and sooner until it's down to 10 seconds or less but we can actually talk ourselves into feeling good. We have been spending all of our lives talking ourselves into feeling bad, and we continue to do that. But we need to develop a practice so that we can remember very quickly to watch every thought that we have. This is why I would recommend not to have one sitting for an hour a day, but to have a lot of sessions. The way that I would recommend to get started would be like for that hour, we could have four 15 minute sessions or six 10 minute sessions, starting out with 15 minutes and then going to shorter periods of time, but we make it more often. So that by the time that you're really good at it, you're remembering to do this 100 times a day. Getting yourself into a really nice state 100 times a day. Not so hard if we practice but if we practice meditation only once a day and we do that for an hour let us say even if we were practicing correctly then that means then that we have 23 hours a day of, of uh, unwholesome thoughts 23 hours a day of hindrances we we are raised in hindrances we've been raised with critical thoughts we spend a little bit of time every day having wholesome thoughts, but most of the time we spend having unwholesome thoughts, which is going to win here. What we need to do is practice wholesome thoughts often enough so that they actually become a habit. We need to practice this over and over and over again, often throughout the day. And that what we're looking for is immediately getting out of the first noble truth into the third noble truth.
Now, a lot of teachers, they don't talk about the third noble truth. It's almost like that that's the magical end of the story way off into the future, rather than something that you can get yourself into immediately. Within the next three to five minutes, you can just sit there and just get yourself completely free from suffering. And you can monitor that. You can say, is there any suffering right now? No, not a bit. I'm feeling great. I feel nice. Everything is all right. Everything is fine. We need to practice getting ourselves into that third noble truth often so that we're completely free from suffering, which means that all the thoughts that we're having are wholesome thoughts. And that we feel sukha, we feel safe and secure, which means then that the kind of thoughts that we want to have would be thoughts of making our life safe and secure. I mean, you can look around the room right now and you can say there's no alligators on the floor. There's not a crocodile in sight. The mafia is not coming. I don't see the SWAT team busting down the door. Things must be pretty safe right now. And so you can look around and say, yeah, there's no reason to feel insecure. I can feel completely safe. And so we can talk ourselves literally into feeling safe. Nothing's going to bother us. Everything is fine. There's no work to do. There's no place to go. Everything is okay. And I can just sit here and enjoy myself. This is the practice of Anapanasati. Of taking those long, deep, easy breaths and having the attitude that this is so nice, no place to go, nothing to do, everything is all right. And I begin to develop that attitude hey, I can do this anytime I want to. I can feel in a really good state anytime that I want to if I practice. And there are going to be times when, um, Let's let's introduce it this way. You've heard of Murphy's Law. Do you know what Murphy's Law is? Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. But there's a second line to it. That second line is, and it will go wrong at the worst possible moment. So think of Sati as Murphy's Law. In the sense that anything can go wrong, will go wrong, and it's going to go wrong at the worst possible moment, which means we need to train our sati so that it's going to be there for us at the worst possible moment. This is what the Buddha means, that even at the worst possible moment, we can still clean out the mind out of those hindrances and come back into a really nice, beautiful state. An example of that would be sitting for the coronavirus uh, vaccine. And she's going to stick that needle right in. And we can say, yeah, I can handle that. No problem. I don't have to call it a Fauci outie. I don't have to avoid it. I can just take it. I can handle that shot. No problems. No worries. Another example of it is, is that I can actually stand in line waiting for those shots. I don't have to feel bad. I don't have to uh, uh, hassle or, or being. I can just stand here and say, yeah, I can wait. I can wait. Another example is we're tooling down the road on the highway and we hear the siren and the flash of the lights and we know that the cop is stopping us. How are you going to feel? How do you feel right now? Me just telling you about that. How do you feel? Do you feel fear coming up? 
Mm -hmm. Okay. Guess what? If you are fearful, the cop will pick up on that at an instinctual level. He will have fear also, and now you've got a dangerous situation. People get killed by cops when they're afraid of cops. So it would be best then when the cop stops, that's the time we need Sati right then and there. And if we can, in fact, use that Sati to clean out the mind, then we can meet that officer happily. And we can cooperate happily. And it's not a dangerous situation at all. If we have that, what we would call presence of mind, but that presence of mind is actually something that we're developing. We're developing that. This is why we want to practice sati, and we want to use opportunities to help strengthen that sati. Bhikkhu Buddhadasa has actually said that being sick is a good opportunity to practice anapanasati. But we want to practice it in the beginning to make it as easy as we can. This is why we go into seclusion. We want to spend time alone so that we can practice getting the mind in a really, really good state. And if we can practice getting the mind in a really, really good state in seclusion, now we can start adding all of the burdens of the normal life that we have, and we can begin to handle the ordinary life that we have with great skill, great beauty, because we developed that joy throughout Anapanasati. But the Anapanasati is not just a practice. A lot of people have the idea that, oh, if I sit for enough hours in meditation, that somehow something will change. No, what's going to change has to be practiced to change it. An example is that if you buy a piano, but you don't practice the piano, but you've got the piano there. You're not going to learn to play the piano just because you've got a piano. You've got to actually practice it. So this is how we look at Anapanasati as something that needs to be practiced all the time, or at least not all the time in the sense of every minute, because that's critical. But rather nurturing in the sense of every time you can remember, every time you can think of it. Practice thinking about it. Practice remembering it. Practice remembering taking a deep breath. Practice remembering to gladden the mind. Practice to remember everything is all right. No worries, no problems. And so this is the practice of Anapanasati. And when we practice it all over and over again, then we develop the skill of the right attitude. And that right attitude is it don't matter what happens, I can handle it. Even my own breath, bring it on. Watch me die happily. Wow. And handle anything. So, Go ahead. So, so I'm, I'm curious, um, do the thoughts you, you have, when you're trying to replace an unwholesome thought with a wholesome thought, like let's say um, I'm, I'm meditating, practicing Anapanasati, and I feel maybe there's like pain in my leg, right? And I, I, my initial thought, the unwholesome thought, is like, I want to not have this pain in my leg. I want to move my leg. Um, would you 
to replace that with a wholesome thought, would it be more general of just saying everything's all right? Or would you try to kind of conjure up a feeling of like neutrality kind of in your leg? Like um, the first thing you talked about moving your leg. Yeah, like let's say you um, just as an example, like you feel pain in your leg and you're maybe on wholesome thoughts. I need to move this leg like. This I can't do this, I can't be in this position anymore. OK, all right. <clears throat> I would say the unwholesome thought would be you should stay here in pain. Mm. That's the unwholesome thought. That in fact, everything that the Buddha had to, uh, to teach had to do with being comfortable, being satisfied. And if you've got leg pain based upon meditation, you're actually doing something intentionally to create pain. That's not what the Buddha taught, but it's what a lot of meditation teachers teach. And in fact, Goenka was the one who was the most famous for that with his strong determination sittings. But I would not recommend that at all. I would recommend doing what you need to do to keep the mind in a really, really good state. And if that means changing your postures, then do so mindfully. Hmm. That's like asceticism. Pardon? That's like asceticism, doing something that you know is hurting yourself. That's directly against what the Buddha realized, like your example of falling into the creek. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm wondering too, when like you're replacing a uh, unwholesome thought with a, a, a wholesome, uh, is it more like language based of like, repeating the words even if maybe you're not feeling that right now like so for example no no let's no, no no you're exactly right that's a very excellent question what you're actually talking about is affirmations affirmations deep inside even the child ego state knows that it's not true okay we um uh that's why so many self-help books have been written. And guess where you find self-help books is on a bookshelf. People read the book, they feel good for a little bit, and then they put the book back on the shelf. And they don't get any more value out of it. And basically, uh, that's because they're using it in the sense of affirmations, which are trying to talk themselves into things that are not true. What we're here instead doing is we're uh, working with what actually is true. And this is an important point. We're not trying to talk ourselves into it, but we're allowing ourselves to, to feel safe and secure. That's why it would be good to, to do it at that level of, there are no alligators here. There's nothing to be afraid of. And so we're actually saying things that are real. There are no dangers here. If there are no dangers, then I can feel safe and secure. OK, in this present moment, let us say that somebody in ordinary uh, frame of reference decides they're going to sit and meditate for an hour. They've already decided that it's going to be an hour. Five minutes into that meditation and they start getting worried about all the work that they've got to do today. 
or tomorrow. But while they're sitting there in meditation, they're not doing that work. They're just mulling over what work needs to be done. In fact, what you could say is, is that they are wasting their time and they are making themselves feel bad over all the work that they've got to do, but they're not doing it. They're meditating instead, or at least that's what they're telling themselves. A better kind of meditation would be, since I'm going to be sitting here anyway, why don't I enjoy it? Why do I have to have thoughts that are going to make me feel bad when I can have thoughts that actually make me feel good? An example of that would be right now, since I am sitting here and that I've already had this time for meditation, then why should I think about working out later at another time? Why don't I actually let myself enjoy this moment where there is, in fact, because of the schedule, no place to go and nothing to do. And I can sit here and enjoy it. So it sounds like my understanding of what you're saying is that the difference between affirmation and uh, the real practice is that like it's a very embodied feeling of uh, sukha, of like safety and that nurturing feeling like you were kind of the signal of knowing that you're kind of like on the right path is that like you're not just saying words, it's not purely cerebral, it is like an embodied feeling. Right. I've had a lot of students say that. Well, I tell myself to gladden the mind, but I don't feel gladdened. Right. And uh, another one they will say is, yeah, I feel the joy, but it's not enough joy. <laughs> well, that's critical thinking. They, they can stay instead. Oh, yes, there's a little bit of joy here. Isn't that nice? Let me have what joy I do have. Because this joy, this sukha, is also a skill to be developed. In fact, that's the way that the Anapanasati Sutta is arranged, so that each step of Anapanasati has the phrase of mindfully while breathing in long, I will uh, train in the skill of sukha. And while I mindfully breathe out long, I will train in uh, sukha. This is how it's stated. But each one of them then was stated that way. So while I'm breathing in long and breathing out long, I will gladden the mind. And then while I'm breathing in long and breathing out long, that gladdening the mind will help develop that feeling of sukha, which is actually has that feeling of contentment. So if my leg hurts, how can I be contented? No one's contented when their leg hurts. We need to get the leg into a state where it doesn't hurt, and then we can be satisfied. Okay, now I don't hurt. And that's real. So you can congratulate yourself for moving your leg because now it doesn't hurt. Now you're comfortable. Isn't this nice? I can, I can sit here feeling really good and secure. So we need to develop this reality and as we develop it, it's a skill that becomes more and more and more. So we start off with just whatever sukha there is. Just a little bit of sukha will be enough in this way. If you were, in fact, uh, going to play the piano, you wanted to play the piano, 
You got a book on the piano. You got a teacher of the piano. You had your first lesson of the piano, but instead of playing the piano, you play soccer. Are you going to, uh, by playing soccer, does that teach you how to play the piano? Okay. If you sit in meditation dissatisfied because you don't have enough sukha, what are you practicing? Sukha or being dissatisfied that you don't have enough sukha? In other words, we need to take just whatever sukha that we can have, the tiniest little bit, and develop that rather than rejecting it, saying that's not good enough. Okay, so this is a way of affirmations is to lie to ourselves, saying, oh, I feel wonderful, when in fact you feel like crap. We're not doing with affirmations. We're looking for anything that is nice. An example of that is, is that there's no reason to be insecure and unsafe right now. The hotel that you're in is fine. The room that you're in is fine. No problem with that room. So why is it that we have that nickel, that underlying unsettled feeling? that things are not quite right. Because right now, everything is right. So we need to practice feeling that everything right now is okay. Everything right now is satisfying. Everything right now is satisfactory. And when we practice that over and over again, that satisfaction gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And as it gets stronger, we develop also that attitude of being a winner. And so as we develop the sati and develop the, uh, the sukha, it turns into pity, which is that wow feeling, the feeling of being a champion. Let's make this point as a kind of a conclusion. You know that they've got the Olympics going on right now, and there's about 22,000 people that are there to, uh, uh, to participate in the Olympics. Why are they there? Entertainment. Pardon? To entertain themselves? Are you saying the people participating or watching? Uh, the, the people, the 22,000 who are there as teammates, they're going to participate. They're mm -hmm. going to be on the uh, track and field or in swimming or whatever like that. We're talking about the competitors, the sports people. Why are they there? It's pride. Pardon? Pride. Pride of what? Well, wow, this is really interesting. Let me give you the answer and make it easy for you. They're there to win. How many of them are there to lose intentionally? Zero. Zero. They're there to win. Okay. Now let's look a little deeper in there. Why are they there to win? What is winning? Don't you? Wait a minute. Because winning feels good. 
Doesn't it? Have you ever won anything? Did you ever want to win anything? When you won it, did you feel good? Oh, yeah. yeah, well, if you won the Olympics and got a big gold medal, how would you feel? Like I got a gold medal. All right. Let's let's uh, change it from just a second to from the Olympics into mountain climbing. Why do people climb Mount Everest or the Matterhorn? Or any of the really hard mountains to climb. Why do they why do they climb that mountain? Feeling of getting to the top. Yeah, but when you reach the top, so what? Yes, the Isn't that considered a win? And so they're looking for the exhilaration of being on top of the world. It's a win. Very few people can do that. Isn't that what they, I mean, isn't that why people do mountain climbing? The thrill of uh, uh, the win, often accompanied by the agony of defeat. That's what they used to say 50 years ago in the Olympics. Okay. The ecstasy and the agony. They're looking for the ecstasy of the win and trying to avoid the agony of defeat. All right. So this 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 state of winning, this state of uh, ecstasy, is in fact a human trait, and we all want it. Everyone does it. Bankers on Wall Street do big banking deals so that they'll feel really good. Real estate agents will feel really really good when they make that real estate deal. Imagine that the woman had done this deal to sell this land, and she's finally, after so much work and back and forth and papers and things. And she's finally got the uh, um, the buyer to sign. And then she hands it to the seller. And the seller signs. And while he's signing it, he doesn't even get it completely signed before she in that paper. Yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay. That's why she was in real estate is so she could feel that yeehaw feeling. And that probably lasted all day. Every one of her friends, she'd call them and tell them, oh, I got that deal, I got that deal, I got that deal. How long will she feel that way? A day or two? Maybe after she gets paid? And then she don't feel that way anymore. Now it's time to go do it again. How about the Olympic champion once he uh, won? I mean, why do uh, uh, prize fighters have to defend their championship? It's because they want that win over and over and over again. They want that feeling of, I got it. This human feeling is possible. You can talk yourself into it. You do not need to go to the Olympics to feel like an Olympic champion. You do not need to climb a real mountain to feel like you're on top of the world. That, in fact, if you think about it like this, the much more difficult mountain to climb than Everest is the mountain of the mind. Very, very few people are able to climb the mountain of their own mind and sit on top of their own world. 
It has been said that we are all each one emperors of our own pile of dirt. The question is, are you going to be buried under your pile of dirt? Or are you going to be sitting on top of it? This is actually the Pali word uh, Lokatara, which is translated as to uh, super mundane, to be on top or above the world. And the way that we immediately get that way is by being on top of our thoughts. So the example that I would have is, is that imagine that this is an unwholesome thought and there I am with this unwholesome thought and I'm going around and around and around. Oh, I hate that guy. I wish he'd die. I want to put him in jail. Oh, this is all terrible stuff. He's done me wrong. And then we wake up. Aha, I see you, Myra. And so it comes like this. Notice the difference. Here, I'm stuck. Here, I'm attached. Here, I'm clinging. Here, I'm pointing and saying, I am not that. Aha, I see that thought. When we're doing this, we are the thought. We're in it. When we come out of it, we're on top of it. We're above the world. We can look down on it and say, that is not me. I am not that thought. This is what the Buddha was doing. Aha, I see you, Mara. By doing so, we actually separate ourselves from that thought. In other words, we're actually changing ego state. Normally, what this is, is that's the dialogue between the parent and the child. And the adult comes in and says, Aha, I see you. I see what's going on. And by seeing that, now we can make a change. We can change those unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts by... There's no problem at all anyway. I'm sitting here, everything is fine. There's no worries, there's no problems, no place to go, nothing to do. An example then would be that somebody's thinking about politics, thinking about this guy was president, that guy's president, this is good, this is bad, this team is bad, this uh, party is good, all of that kind of stuff. But while we're sitting thinking about the politics, guess what? We're not fixing politics. Nobody ever fixed politics. And in fact, everybody's trying to fix politics, but they're all pushing in different directions. Imagine that there was a, um, uh, a horse cart that was caught in a gully. And all the farmers around come to help this uh, guy get his uh, horse cart out of the gully. But everybody gets uh, a hand on the push on this cart and they start pushing. Some are on the north, some are on the south, some are on the east, some are on the west, and everybody's pushing, trying to get the cart out. More than likely, the cart's not going to move. More than likely, they're just going to destroy it. That's what's happening with politics today. Everybody's pushing really hard, trying to get the American government to go someplace, and all they're doing is just pushing in on it. It's not going anywhere, right? What good is it if you put your hand in that politics and start pushing on it? Wherever you push on it, there's going to be an equal and opposite push back. So why even bother thinking about politics? Then in fact, politics is an unwholesome thought to have. Let politics be politics, but it's not here. George Biden and, and uh, George Bush, uh, Joe Biden, George Bush, Donald Trump, none of those guys are in our conversation right now. Not one of them is on Zoom right now or Skype. 
So why do we have those guys in our mind? When in fact, it's always going to be something unwholesome. So we could throw that stuff out. And by having all the politics and all the world out of the mind, this part of the world that we're living in right here, right around you, the room you're in, everything's okay. Not a problem in the world inside that room. So if we keep our mind inside the room, then everything's good. So affirmations basically is talking about how things could be. But what we're talking with Anapanasati is how things really are really nice. Things really are right now, right now, really nice. They really are. It's the hindrances of the mind that are telling us that things are not well. And so if we just say, no, everything is okay. Everything is fine. No place to go and nothing to do right now. Everything is okay. If we can get ourselves into that state of comfort and that state of satisfaction and practice that, then we can build on it to where we become more and more and more satisfied. But we have to have that satisfaction right from the uh, uh, from the beginning of the practice is to get ourselves into state of satisfaction. The only way we can do that is by throwing out all those unwholesome thoughts in this moment and have wholesome thoughts right here, right now. And it's to be practiced over and over and over and over again. Why? Because if you're not practicing, the old habit's going to come back. And then you'll have unwholesome thoughts. So begin to monitor what kind of thoughts that you're having. Bring that adult ego state, that frontal cortex, wake it up and have it start to monitor what words, what language we're using. If we're using critical language, then the child's going to feel bad. If we're using nurturing language, then the child's going to feel good. If we lie to the child with our affirmations, that's not going to help. Telling that child ego state, oh, you're the best thing in the world. Well, the child knows that's not true. We're not trying to be the best thing in the world. That's actually critical. But rather, it's okay. Everything is all right right now. We don't have to go to superlatives. And so we can actually then feel that feeling of elation because we got no problems. Everything is fine. And cleaning out one's mind is so rare that I imagine that there's been many, many over the past few years, let's say at least since the 1930s, since they started up the Olympics, there's been far more gold medals given out at Olympics than there are people who have climbed to the mountain of their own mind. Which means that Olympic gold medals are quite common. What's the elation in just an old common gold medal? When I can get the real dude, I can get the real deal. Can come to the top of one's own mind. That's remarkable. And so by that attitude, we could feel like, yeah, I could do that. Yes, I can. 
I can clean out my own mind. I can come to the top of humanity. I can become noble in this moment. And practicing that over and over and over again, and pretty soon I'll have a lot of mind moments that are noble, high quality. And the lifestyle becomes noble, high quality life. So we keep practicing over and over again. So do we have any other questions? I don't have any. Okay. I think, I think that's, that's it for Go me. Go ahead. I like the way you were talking about, aha, I see you, Mara, because I, I've seen that a whole, whole bunch of times, but having it explained that way really made me appreciate that. That's exactly why people say that. Mm -hmm. That's actually gladdening the mind right then and there. Being stuck in it, that's one thought. But, aha, I see you. Ah, look at that. I see that crap. <laughs> and so we gladden the mind that way. We brighten it up by saying, ah, I can see that stuff now. A lot of people, uh, when they have uh, insight, or let us say they have that wake up, they have that sati, and they see that the mind is in uh, clinging, then they'll say, Oh, poor me, all oh, my mind is just so monkey mind, all oh, this is hard. In other words, they haven't come out of the hindrances. The coming out of the hindrances have to do with, aha, I see you. And we change what's in the mind immediately. That means that we now apply the mind to the wholesome, and we continue to apply the mind to the wholesome until it... Um, begins to get an establishment so that you can begin to establish the mind in the wholesome. This is what we mean by applied and sustained thought, to sustain it so that we can sustain the mind into having one wholesome thought after another after another, which is basically thoughts about what's happening in this present moment. This is a nice breath. This is a nice breeze. Wow, I really like this particular moment. Everything is okay. Everything is fine. So these are the kind of words that we would use to gladden the mind that then allow us to feel good. We literally can talk ourselves into feeling good, just like we've talked ourselves into feeling bad. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation, guys. This has been great. This is really good. Yeah, it's been really great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. We'll, we'll see you both again soon. I'll see you very soon. Okay. Yes, thank you. Well, thank you. Nice to meet you, Justin. Nice to meet you, Tyler. I hope the two of you become friends. That we need, I haven't even talked about it today, but that we need Sangha. That's what Sangha is about. We need spiritual friends. The Pali word would be Kaliyamata. And so I hope that the two of you have other chats. Definitely. I'll send you a message after this, Justin. Hey, I appreciate it. I'm always down for chatting. All right, guys. See ya. All right. See you later. Y'all take care.